Shall I take your order, or do you need a minute? Ah, yes, I'll be ready. Just buying a car on Carvana. What? It's super convenient. I already got pre-qualified in two minutes. All I had to do was answer a few questions. What? That's handy. Yeah, now I'm customizing my down and monthly payments. What? That's an exquisite deal. And just like that, Carvana's delivering my car in a couple days. What? Oh, yeah. Uh, sorry, I'll have the burrito. Visit Carvana.com to finance your next car. Financing subject to credit approval. Delivery fees may apply. Hi, I'm Caitlin Van Maul, host of I Survived. If you enjoy I Survived, we are excited to announce a new launch. Starting November 15th, we'll be reposting our classic episodes from season one of I Survived. We hope to reach a whole new audience with these important stories of survival. And for those of you who have been with us since the beginning, we think these powerful episodes warrant another listen. Starting November 15th, look out for those episodes and more news from I Survived. Hey everyone, welcome to Dr. Podcast. We appreciate you guys being here. Appreciate you supporting the people that support us and also checking out some of the other stuff we're doing. As I always remind you, that uh, streaming show on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, 3 o'clock Pacific, TV. It's all at The You know, your mom's house. You guys would enjoy being over there. There's no doubt in my mind, so check that all out. Today, my guest is Smirthi... I'm going to have trouble with your last name. Kirbanadan? Kirbanadan? Did I get that right? Close, close. Kirbanadan. Kirbanadan. The podcast is HLTH Forward, Health Forward. Uh, it's available at healthforward.buzzsprout.com. Is that correct? B U Z Z Sprout. Uh, also available on Apple Podcasts, Google, wherever else you get your stuff. And uh, your Twitter handle um, is it S I M I I I? S, yeah, it's S-I-M-I-I underscore S-I-M. There you are. And uh, LinkedIn is at Smirthi Kirbanadan. Uh, <laughs> she is a Bachelor in Science Robotics, Master's in Engineering from USC, Public Health from UCLA, and she serves as a Senior Healthcare Strategist for Tata Consultancy Services. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Let's talk about your pod. What's going on in your podcast? Uh, what's going on in my podcast? Nothing. I think it's just a space, and you've been on it as well, where I interview healthcare leaders, health tech executives, policymakers, and artists to really talk about the challenges that exist in the healthcare system and what is it that we can do collectively to uh, move healthcare forward. And what have you learned? You know, quite a bit. I feel like uh, some of them, uh, I think some of the challenges have been systemic challenges, whether it's equity challenges or issues about price transparency or who gets what kind of care. I think that's been longstanding. But what I've learned is people are much more open to the conversations and leaders are practicing vulnerability in terms of, you know, what's working, what's not working, uh, the flaws in the system, including physician burnout, uh, issues with technology, and especially given the pandemic, uh, the recognition has become that, you know, healthcare is broken. And if we individually don't take accountability, then, you know, collectively, we're not going too far. You, you mentioned equity. I, I always, I have absolute commitment to equality of access, equality of resources, and supporting people that have been disproportionately affected by whatever issues are burdening them. But equity of outcome, equity in healthcare, to me, is anathema. How do we understand that? How do I, how do I understand how a 19-year-old male and 85-year-old female are supposed to have anything like equity of outcome? It, it just does. You could take two monozygotic identical twins and you cannot get equity of outcome with identical problems because it's just the biology is too complicated. It's like it's like trying to have the equity to predict what two clouds are going to do and make sure they end up in the same place. It's it's not possible. H- how do we understand that concept in healthcare? You know, that's a great question, and I don't believe I have the answers to that because I think it's a complex problem. But I think um, what needs to be done in healthcare, if I had to change the answer a little bit, uh, is to really look at a patient's background that includes, you know, the socioeconomic factors, the financial factors, inclusive, uh, their pre-existing conditions, and then to see if the person delivering care is giving it with the intent of equity in their in their mindset and if they're addressing and giving the equal quality of care at the right time that's a very regardless- equal quality of care it's very different than equity of outcome right those are in, they, they don't even overlap if there was a Venn right. diagram one, one is yeah. doable one is not doable <laughs> and, yeah. and one is so I- 
and one will help humans and one is just sort of some sort of weird concept that's not human. Yeah, so I think we're still very much in the concept phase in many ways, but if you have to look at giving equity of outcome for, you know, two different people maybe having similar conditions, I I don't I don't I don't I'm not just too confident that we're there yet and what needs to be done is right. to maybe follow up on management of care is what I'm thinking. I don't know. Any thoughts? What do you have in your mind? <laughs> There's just no such thing as equity of outcome. It just doesn't, it just doesn't exist in nature. It just, it's not a biological principle. Equity, equitable distribution of resources, equitable in, in you know, supporting people that are being disproportionately burdened and all that. Absolutely. And keeping equity in equality in your mind as a, as a, as a caretaker hundred percent, none of that is going to affect Everyone ending up in the same place. It's just, it's just too complicated biologically. It's just, it's just not – like I said, monozygotic twins with the same conditions will not end up with equity of outcome. It just won't. How is a 90-year-old male and an 85-year-old female supposed to be even thought of in those – it's too much for me. But anyway, okay. Um, so it, how uh, – in a time when – you know, it's always seemed to me that primary care was – Sort of the 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 what do I what do you call it when somebody's the, the guard of the chicken coop like the, the foxes are everywhere and primary care was the ombudsman primary care is the one that got the patient through the system because it's the system is so complicated I as somebody who's been working in it thirty five years can barely understand it how's a patient supposed to understand that but we have gone through a complete dissolution of uh, primary care. It just sort of doesn't exist. It's certainly not supported in any way, educationally, financially. It just isn't. Unless you're talking about physician extenders, which are supposed to replace primary care, and maybe that's where we're headed. But what do you think about uh, primary care's role in solving some of these problems? You know, I have, and I, given that you're a physician and I have a lot of uh, family and friends who are physicians as well, have high regards and respect for the work they're doing. And I see some of the challenges being, you know, given uh, the pandemic, telehealth really took up took up a notch and everyone's gone virtual is one. And, you know, in, in the United States at 900,000 physicians in the last, I would say, six months, we've lost around 100,000 of them just to burnout and inability to be able to give high quality of care at the right time. So I think the system is complex. And in terms of the primary care physicians giving the right care at the right cost and the right time, you know, I think there is a lot of thinking that's that needs to be done in what is being taught in medical schools as, you know, some of the examples of food as medicine or nutrition kind of moving away from the pill popping culture, but also addressing and kind of uh, training them to address mental health issues and the other spectrums of health and let, wellness. Let me, let me push back that a little bit and just say yeah. I, I cold, totally agree with you that we that you know, the mental health stuff needs focus and that the the. I, I was raised by a family practitioner. My dad was a family practitioner. And he he would my whole life. Pills are bad. Pills are bad. Medicines are bad. Medicines are dangerous. He just hammered that into my head. Only when the risk clearly outweighs the benefit, and the benefits clearly outweigh the risk. I remember I wasn't allowed to take an antibiotic till I was like 15. And I remember I remember the day when he gave it to me. He goes, "All right, here we go. We're gonna we're gonna do this. I'm gonna give you an antibiotic. Who knows what the outcome's gonna be? This is a big deal. Just taking some ampicillin at the time." And and we've lost that completely, where we think pills are the solution to everything, and that is that is a really serious cultural problem. And, and I completely agree with you on that. However, when I had pro when I had prostate cancer and I needed a robotic radical prostatectomy, and I sat down with the surgeon, I did not want him thinking about anything except that surgery. I don't want him ever thinking about nutrition, ever thinking about mental health. I was concerned with him being a perfectionist of that surgery. I, how, what's, your, what's your rate of erectile dysfunction and, and urinary incontinence? What's the rate? Zero. Fine. Don't think about anything else. Do never get near mental health or, or nutrition. Keep focusing on that robotic procedure. Thank you. Do my surgery. That's it. Doctors are overcome with the training and the preoccupation required to do the practice of medicine, to handle the illnesses we are presented such as it is. To do that properly, we can't get into nutrition and all these other things. That is a, it, all that needs attention, but that's a wholly separate discipline from what doctors do. And it needs to be developed, it needs to be expanded, and somebody needs to be really focused on that. But that same person that's focused on that and the science on that cannot be doing my radical prostatectomy. Cannot, you know, under yeah, no circumstances. I, 
Yeah, I agree with you, but I think we're talking about two things, right? One is the primary care, then we're speaking about a surgeon who's, you know, two different functionalities. But I think the primary care physicians who are facing the general I, I think state, I think right? you have yeah. way underestimated the burden of primary care. <laughs> way underestimated. We are we are taking all the liability, all the family issues, all the mental health issues, all the insurance issues, all the death and dying issues when everyone else is done. There is not time for much else. It literally needs to be a separate discipline that we have to develop. And I agree with you. That to be done through the medical schools. But it needs to be a separate – it needs to be some sort of – and it kind of is developing that way, right? It's sort of a separate thing. And and by the way, nursing has always done that work and should be encouraged to expand what they're doing in that way. Nurses are great educators. And so much of what you're talking about is is medical education, right? Right. So, yeah, so I think, you know, uh, so to correct my point, I think what I was mentioning is primary care physicians, physicians having the ability to dispatch and create this triad system for that one patient, right? So that's either bringing in behavioral health specialists or nutritionists, not suggesting that primary care physicians do it all. But having knowledge and having that in the back pocket is definitely, you know, helpful, especially given the pill popping culture and every other issues we're having as a silent pandemic. I think that equips primary care physicians to to do better, be better, and also dispatch to other experts in the field, right? So that includes nurses as well. Silent epidemic? What is that? What is the silent epidemic in your mind? Um, I'm to me, the silent epidemic is the level of depression, anxiety we have just in America and the physician burnout specifically and every other issue the teens are having, right? And you're much more aware of the concerns we have. I think mental health is a silent epidemic in my in my perspective. And so is loneliness. So 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 you're really interesting. Let's kind of drill into that because loneliness I agree. It is it is quietly suffered, and most people aren't aware of how pervasive it is. Physician burnout, same thing. Physicians are much like police officers or military. They're ashamed when they're burned out. They don't tell anybody about it. They keep, that's all quiet. But to me, and we can talk about each of those those things, and I, I would like to. But to me, the mental health epidemic is a glaring, screaming phenomenon that's everywhere you look. And to, I, uh, why is that a silent epidemic? It's just we just are people really that ignorant of what they're seeing? No, I think, you know, I feel like it is. You're right. I think it is screaming in our faces, but I think it's silent because. I think it's the only time this is being bought out is right after the pandemic because the isolation and the level of mental health concerns people are raising. But I'm curious also to hear your thoughts on there are a couple of layers which makes it still silent. One, I think, is a cultural barrier. I think coming from India, we still, in a very large scale, don't talk about going to therapy or seeking help. It's still a little bit shunned. So I think there are different layers. yeah. So I think yeah. So I think that's one. That's a cultural factor. Secondly, there's an economic factor as to why people don't want to talk about it. And when it comes to healthcare, people you, there, I there's think a realistic are, part. You can't get access. There is there's yeah. not enough resources. That's yeah. true. Huh. Yeah. So, and I think for physicians, I still think a lot of them don't really talk about it because they're concerned about uh, one, their reputation and how they can really give care. I think that's, and you know, and you would have much more experience in this, but I think that's my personal experience of their level of comfort and really talking about it. Yeah. Yeah. No, they, they have to be forced into it. And, uh, and, and again, there's a certain amount of paranoia amongst physicians because we are Everywhere we look, there's somebody with a sword out trying to come after us and what we're doing. Right. It's really challenging. And, and uh, we're going in the wrong direction. Uh, it just seems to me, you know, I mentioned primary care earlier. You have to be out of your mind to go be a physician going to primary care right now. You, have to be out of, you literally have to be out of your mind. Or it has to be some massive calling and you're going to do something interesting, you know, around the world or something. But you you, you can't be sane or you can't be talented and do it because you just wouldn't. It just, it's just, it just the, the forces against it are so powerful that no one would want to do that. And, and the same thing is happening really with the profession generally. It's, it's always first in primary care, but then it trickles all throughout the profession. And so these, you know, as you've said, there's burnout, but people are leaving it at, at an extraordinary rate. And it's not just burnout. It, it's, it's job dissatisfaction. It's, it's painful to practice medicine now. And who is going to go into it in the future is sort of that's what worries me. You know, how do we attract good people into the profession? How do we train them properly? And it's it's concerning. 
concerning. Right. Do, do you yeah, have any thoughts you. about and that? Given, yeah, I think you're right. I think given the future of aging, where I think yeah. most of us are going to be above 65 by 2050, and the lack of physicians and healthcare workforce in the U.S., I think the quality of care is definitely questionable. And I think that's when I get excited about technology innovations such as digital twin and you know robotic surgery, so that we can kind of hopefully compensate some of the you know some of this effect. What was the first thing you called digital? Digital twin. Uh, are you have you heard about that concept no. recently? Let's talk about it. So it's basically uh, a technology innovation where. Uh, people can replicate a person or a system. So for example, I could create a digital twin of Smriti and you as a physician could feed this virtual Smriti different kinds of treatments and different kinds of processes to see how my twin reacts to it so that you can learn automatically on what works, what doesn't work, and you can use that information to implement on the real Smriti. So it's basically just a virtual concept to make medicine treatments and even hospital operations much more efficient and precise. Who is um, p promoting that? Oh, this is just a very uh, new technology innovation started mostly in manufacturing, but healthcare systems and including our TCS, we do a lot of work in digital twin as well. So it's just a concept. Be because it, it seems, I, I, the reason I'm just curious, it seems non-biological. It, it seems to defy the basic phenomenon that biology is just a probabilistic sort of quasi-predictive, uh, uh, what should we use? Well, let's use the word science. It, it doesn't have digital elements. It's all very analog. How you know it's a, even just you know how a particular chemical pathway, give any any given chemical pathway, how much it goes one direction versus the other. It's just it's just it's just hemodynamics and and what the probabilities of one direction or another. It's not like this goes to this, those to this. That just doesn't exist in biology. Right. So I think the concept, I think it's still evolving, but it's a little more complex and I'm trying to simplify it. Okay. I think the complex okay. is really, yeah, yeah. So I think it's really getting data points from different elements, whether it's, you know, at a cellular level or, you know, the pre-existing conditions and really pulling data from different sources to really make this digital twin as realistic and close to the real person or real element. And then to give that the treatment and different probabilities to see how that person or system reacts to different, uh, that makes sense to me that you get a sort of right. a probability readout like this 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 is the probably this outcome that you that that seems like a sensible thing and is that is that coming out of sort of info uh, engineering information engineering and, and and information technology or or big data or both I think it's both yeah. because I think well you need lots of data to actually you know, match the realistic uh, point of contact but I think it's also you know, industrial engineering, right? And a lot of physician and understanding the research behind what it takes to really make that happen. But I think it's really fascinating because as you would know, there are a lot of medical errors, a lot of healthcare costs, a lot of over-medication. So then this allows one to be realistic and to see what's working, what's not working is the hope. So I don't I don't know. We'll see in a couple of years where this goes. Yeah. And you, you just, you know, you sort of mentioned a, a really serious problem there, which is overuse of medication and polypharmacy and that kind of stuff. And when I was teaching medicine, <laughs> maybe this sounds archaic, but we 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 didn't look for technological solutions to the shortcomings in our peers' application of their clinical disciplines. We trained them better. We made them do more work. We tr we got better. We trained better doctors, and we did more aggressive training, and more thorough training, and more follow up, and more CME. And the, and I always thought that was. I mean, the, isn't that really what we want? Is better physicians who don't make these mistakes and who do a better job and are more thoughtful in what they do and have better clinical clinical reasoning skills. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think we still need them. And I think given the ecosystem of the burnout and the complications and the amount of time they have with just doing the paperwork, I think technology just elevates and helps them to do what they're doing already better. So it's not by any means replacement, right? But right. Yes, an absolute training and the right amount of training is required because human touch is never going to go away, as you know. Yeah, it's it's... It, it, I'm just I'm so mystified by so much these days, and I hope you don't mind me questioning because I just I'm uh, like a lot, a lot of astonishment all the time. Like you know, whatever I, happened to treating to? I always used to say this when I would get this ridiculous scrutiny from the state or from 
departmental health or an insurance resource. I go, if I don't know what I'm doing, send me back for more training. I loved my training. My training was great. I, I teach other people in training and I'm tough on them. Send me back too. I'd love it. No, no. Listen to that clerk in Illinois who knows better what you should be doing for your patient. That's, that's, you know, that's kind of fascinating because I think, uh, you know, you're, you're old school, you know, thinking and so am I. I would love to be in school consistently for the rest of my life, yeah. just learning and practicing. Right. But I think people in humans generally now are just becoming a little lazier, if I could just say that. Oh, right? look at you. <laughs> <laughs> so it's just, you know, people want to do th quick things faster. There's this triad system, there's dispatching. Yeah. And there's a little bit of laziness and, you know, technology makes us a little lazy, right? Like the reason. Yeah innovation that came out was the the GP chat where someone just writes three words and then it creates a blog within within a few seconds for thousand words and it's pretty accurate yeah and so that replaces every marketing every writer every you know every other human human body but also makes us extremely lazy not just in physical work but just even in our thought process like we don't use our brains as much as we used to no, because that is a really significant observation I, I, I have not really <laughs> sort of said it out loud or thought about it so clearly but but really, Back, I'm thinking about my own training and, and when I had to think things through and, you know, and I, I sometimes I'm a little, Im maybe embarrassed isn't the right way, word, but more like diminished by what some of my biochemical training was, was a lot of time with electrical, you know, uh, these gels that would, you know, migratory gels and trying to, to, to differentiate what these restriction enzymes have cut apart and reasoning through what we were looking at, just, just problem solving, problem solving, problem solving all the time. It wasn't putting th something into an automated machine and getting an answer back. It, it was right. trying to think through through things and, and inferentially, everything was a least squares analysis. Everything had a chi-square attached to it. These were just sort of probabilities and we were trying to get the closest to the truth as we could. But that gave me a real sense of uh, you know, how biology works and how 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 more amorphous it, it really is and how you know, this when, when words like narrative get used in medicine, I, I bristle because <laughs> because it's like you, there's no there's no narrative in biology. You can sort of describe things, but it doesn't really work like that. It doesn't. Yeah. Then there's no explicitly no narrative, and if and if you're sticking to a narrative, you are not talking about biology. And and I fear that we have trained too many people on these sort of just pathways and, and, you know, sort of memorizing things that really are just sort of representations of what's going on rather than real descriptions of what's going on. Is, are, you, are you with me on yeah, that? Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think you're right. I think we're becoming excellent storytellers than science-based. Oh my God. You are so right. You are so uh, right. That is exactly data, it. <laughs> data driven. And I think storytelling is important if you've done that first piece. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a useful way of getting an idea apart across to non-scientists. But if you're talking amongst scientists, it's insane. It's insane to talk that way. And that, that's yeah. why. And a lot of the nutrition stories have narratives to them. And you know, there's a as a, a colleague of mine, crap, I'm a Kate Shanahan, who. Um, <laughs> who, when I first met her, she'd written a book on nutrition and stuff, and, and I was talking to her. She was a biochemist before she was a physician. And uh, she goes, oh, nutrition is way too common. The biology is – you can't say anything. But I can say this about fats. I can say this about certain kinds of fat. And she had this very narrow, specific thing about essentially animal fats versus seed fats and what the, what the sort of data showed and what the biology suggests. And I was like, well, that's somebody I can listen to. That she knows what she's talking about, for sure, because these things are so fantastically complex. When people start telling you, oh, here's what happens when you take X vitamin or something, it's just, no, no way. No, 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 no. There's no way you can tell that. You can, you yeah, can say I, I think it. I think you're right. I think, you know, there's a lot of storytelling. There's a lot of data. There's a lot of, you know, diet lifestyles. There's a lot of healthcare options. I, you know, it leaves a common person very confused and overwhelmed that I'm in healthcare and I'm very much confused how the healthcare <laughs> system works. You know, yeah. like, what am I No, that was my for? original like, point, right? You, you need somebody who works in there for years uh, and can lead you through it because it's just no way an average person can, can understand. It. And by the way, how it operates locally where I practice is different than how it operates in New York City and then how it operates in Texas. It's just it's all different everywhere. Yeah. And the and, medical you know, the is different than the Medicare's you know, yeah. and the insurance is different than the cash. It's all different. 
you know, and you know, when I uh, when I travel to India, what I really love about India because it's still a very developing country is they tell you upfront what are you paying for, right? You go yeah. get an MRI or an X-ray, they give you the entire breakdown, they itemize it, right? And in the U.S., I'm I spend weeks trying to figure out. What am I even paying for? And there are situations when I go in and say, hey, do I have to pay for anything? They say, absolutely not. It's covered. A week later, I get a $1,000 bill. Right. I'm like, how, how is this possible? Right, right. You know? Yes. So do, it's the mystery of, you know, it's the black hole. Well, it kind of it kind of started breaking down. Do you remember DRGs? Do you remember that whole concept? Oh, you're not even alive then probably. <laughs> so so what, what started happening and still happens is hospitals started getting paid a lump sum per diagnosis, mm. uh, and they and so things weren't broken down, and so the the priority became restrict use horses, get the patient out of the hospital, so you can maximize profit from that lump sum given for the particular diagnosis. And there are ways to modify the diagnosis. It still is what goes on today. There are ways to modify the diagnosis. It was complicated. It was in an ICU. It was whatever, but uh, it was an allocation of resources based on lump sums. And that kind of st- that kind of phenomenon is still what's driving things, and that's where people that's where it gets so confusing for everybody. Yeah, I think it's a you know still a very fee for service uh, model, but I think you know there's a lot of conversations around value based care. But we've been talking about value based care, which is just focusing on high quality care and getting paid for the level of quality of care that's being delivered. But you know, I think I think we're really miles away from making that happen. I, I agree. How, how would they how would they even possibly operationalize something like that? How, how do you determine that? I, I mean, I, I, mean, take, other I, take, than honest I take a lot of sick, patient. I take a lot of sick, very sick, 85-year-old with problem lists at least 20 deep. What's what's my quality of care going to be? There's going to be problems all the time. There's going to be issues. There's going to be medical, there's going to be hospitalizations. That's the population I take care of. How are we going to assess what I'm doing? Something you may not know, according to the Kaiser Family Foundation, 25% of Americans live more than an hour from a Tier 1 or even Tier 2 trauma center. If you're one of those 83 million people, have you thought about what kind of immediate help is available should you need it and what it might cost? Well, it's an easy way to stress less and free yourself from this financial worry. An Air MedCare Network membership. Air MedCare Network's participating providers transport critically ill or injured patients in fully equipped state-of-the-art helicopters, but being an Air MedCare Network member brings expert care and financial peace of mind because you'll have no out-of-pocket expenses only when flown by an AMCN provider. You can become a member for just $99 a year and your entire household is covered. Right now, the Dr. Drew Podcast listeners get up to an $80 MasterCard or Amazon e-gift card when they join AMCN and use that offer code DREW, Drew. Protect your family and your finances. Visit airmedcarenetwork.com forward slash Drew today. Shopify is the commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. Covers every sales channel from an in-person POS system to an all-in-one e-commerce platform. And thanks to 24-7 help and an extensive business course library, Shopify is there to support your success every step of the way we love shopify you will too what's incredible about shopify is how no matter how big you want to grow shopify is there to empower you with the confidence and control to revolutionize your business and take that business to the next level now it's your turn to get serious about selling and try shopify today this is possibility powered by shopify Sign up for a $1 per month trial at shopify.com slash Drew. It's all lowercase. Shopify.com slash Drew. $1 a month. Go to shopify.com slash Drew to take your business to the next level today. One more time. That's Shopify, S-H-O-P-I-F-Y.com slash Drew. I think, yeah, I mean, that's very subjective. I think for some people it could be, are they getting readmitted? Are they, what's the quality of life after the care was given? You know, there are many moving parameters, but I, you know, I, I don't know. I think it's, it's a complicated, <laughs> it's a complicated system on how we define what quality of care is, what is the value in this value-based care definition, right? So, yeah, um, yeah, it's a, it's a little more complicated. Yeah, I, I, and what will inevitably happen and I know people want this or not, but if we start measuring quality of life for a patient, you're going to have a lot of 90-year-olds whose lives are going to be altered by bureaucratic 
principles rather than their wishes, whether it is to check out soon or to hang on as long as possible. Those are individual experiences as you age. Some people want to be left alone, just let me die quietly and let's get, you know, let's just not do too much. Other people want everything done, even when they're in the ICU, which is super crazy because we right. know that's a, 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 a grotesque overutilization of resources. But we are we going to restrict that? Are we going to prevent that from happening? So do you are you a believer of making euthanasia legal? I'm not sure it's legal in the U.S. yet, is it? I no, think it, it, well, there's certain states that it would be state by state, I'm sure. And there are things, I think Oregon has a thing. I, I, uh, you know, I, I don't... I don't worry about, you know, evil villains twirling their mustache. You know what I mean? I don't worry about that. I do worry about lack of sophistication with the application of these things. Like how do you determine whether somebody is depressed or there are mental health issues? What, that, that particularly in the mental health, the, the, the access and the assessment process is really weak. So I, I worry about that. But, but if somebody clearly... Uh, has only suffering ahead. You know, physicians do this to themselves a lot, way more than sort of the public knows. Doctors take lethal doses of things when they have when they know what's coming. Mm. That happens a lot. I've seen that many peers do that, and it just goes down as a suicide. But mm. they, it's it's a, it's a, would be considered a rational suicide by all the peers because they know pain, misery, just n no quality of life, confusion, nothing ahead. Uh, you know, when do you check that moment? I, I would tell you what really bothers me about it uh, is I euthanized a dog who was really at the end. And, and with dogs, there's a really interesting thing is that they suffer severely at the end of life. All the veterinarians will tell you that. And you want to avoid that suffering at the very end. But then how do you choose the moment where you take, right. where you extinguish a life? It was the oddest feeling. I didn't feel right about it at all, even though I knew it was the right thing to do, even for a dog, I, I was not comfortable with it. So, so I guess my, my, my basic principle or my basic idea would be I, I'm for people avoiding suffering when things are super clear. I'm not at all comfortable with that power to choose. A, think about that. Think about what that is. The moment. Yeah. The, it's, it's, I, I, I understand it's just temporality we're talking about, right. you know, choosing that moment. But it is an extremely powerful moment. And if, and if you don't feel that, then I've even, I'm even more worried. <laughs> so, 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 right? Which, and there may be people who get very casual with it, and that's now I'm really worried. So, so I'm, right. I'm very ambivalent about it. I'm very ambivalent about it. So, you know, I, th I think that is a very powerful responsibility. And I think I think about you know choice of living with suffering or not. I think the real question I think about is: is the person individual living with dignity? And do they feel like the entire course of their life is also kind of maintained at that same kind of level? I, I completely, I completely agree. I, I have stood at the. I actually, I had a patient that was this extra lovely, extremely dignified lady, and we were, and she was on her last legs, and it was clear. And I had this very powerful moment where I was there with the family, and I started crying <laughs> because I was sort of embarrassed because I was, I was so taken with the dignity of her life and so um, profoundly committed to making sure that was carried all the way to the end. And the family, of course, agreed with that and stuff, and it turned out fine. But, but again, those are these kinds of powerful moments that that we are charged with. And I don't want to be worrying about nutrition in those moments. <laughs> I don't want to be. I don't, yeah, 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 I don't think you should. <laughs> You're right. Those are moments where we don't need food as medicine. For yeah. Sure. Yeah. And, and, yeah. And so and if doctors are not spending the time and the energy to really think deeply about these things, we are losing something profound. And, and by the way, I am perfectly accepting of people who want to say, want to take a sort of spiritual slash religious orientation and say it is not the purpose, not the place of the human being to determine an end of a, of a God-given life. I'm perfectly sympathetic to that point of view. And if that becomes the, the sort of predominant position, I'm comfortable with that. Now, there will be some suffering, and you better fucking give me the legal privilege <laughs> to diminish that any way I can. You know what I mean? Even if it's right. risky. The problem is now doctors are afraid to do it because <gasps> I might kill the patient and I don't want to do that. And it's like, mm, there's a balance. You you can you can risk risk killing somebody is different than 
taking the moment to kill somebody. That's very different. And I think we should be given that privilege to control pain and misery for sure. And for the most part, doctors and nurses are able to, to apply that privilege. Right. No, absolutely. And I think the other point we both are actually sharing in a silent way is really seeing if physicians do have the empathy, not just in making those decisions, but generally in, in the time of giving care, like how empathetic yeah. is healthcare? I don't know. Yeah. It's, well, we're losing <laughs> it. We're losing that. Right. And we're creating, we're creating technicians. And yep. that's kind of what we've been, that's what I was sort of fishing around with, with you, with the technology and stuff. I worry about that. And, and again, as somebody that you know, I, I, I feel sometimes like I'm a time traveler come from a different era. <laughs> and so, and I, and, but here's, here's something that I thought during my – I loved my training and I thought what I was doing was the most important job in the world. I thought it was so important what we were doing. And so when I started teaching, uh, I was t- – I was mm, – mm, maybe I'd be <laughs> – like, like really I was tough. And because this is so important and that – is not tolerated anymore, and I don't think the the sense of importance of what we're doing is is there anymore. And maybe that's a you know maybe there's good and bad to that. You know, I mean, maybe the thinking that what we're doing is so important is is ex- excessive. I, I don't know. I, what do you yeah, think? Yeah, I, I think we exist in dualities, right? So I think uh, when we're progressing in technology and innovation, then the human touch kind of takes a seat back. But I think. You know, IQ without EQ in personal and professional life for me is really not a good equation, right? Yes. I think you need IQ and EQ in everything we do, and healthcare definitely needs that. Uh, but I also think you're right. I think the sense of pride of the art of being a physician and, you know, healing and, you know, making lives better, I think that's being reduced because now, as you know, most of the physicians are like, okay, let me do two days of clinic work. Yeah. And then the other day is let me go do some management yeah. work or public yeah. health work. That's weird. That's such that's, that's <laughs> an odd thing to me. And the the idea that people get out of residency and then go into entrepreneurship and stuff like, well, I, what, what, don't you want to practice for a while? <laughs> it's really, really, because you change a lot in the first 10 years of practice. Trust me, you, 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 you continue to grow and refine what you do. Um, and so that that's I've always found that very odd, and and so whatever. Uh, again, I'm a time traveler. <laughs> but do do you have do you have kids? No, not yet. Still single, hunting. So. Uh oh, I've got some ideas for you. Uh, is there it, it, uh, what I was going to ask was, and so I'll ask it sort of more hypothetically. You know, where the you know the children of today, what, what is their healthcare going to be like in? 40, 50 years. I, I can't see it. I have zero sense of where we're going. You know, that's a very interesting question. Um, one, at this given stage, when I look at my nieces and nephews, what I'm really concerned about, their level of identity crisis, uh, that comes in terms of gender, how do they fit in culturally, you know, are they good enough? Combine then that with the mental health challenges they're having, you know, as you know, one in four adolescents are trying to commit suicide or they have some significant mental health issues. Um, I'm concerned about that right now. But in terms of future of the kids and their health, um, I think there's a pros and cons. I feel like technology can make uh, innovations and healthcare more accessible and more precise. But I also feel like as humans, we are going to be a little more disconnected and living in our bubbles and losing a sense of community. Uh, I think, and I think that's a bigger concern to me. And I'm we're already, I'm on- we're already there. How much worse is that going to get? <laughs> Whoa. So I think I'm, I'm a little concerned, to be honest. And I think the future seems good in some ways. But for the most part, I think in terms of the identity and sense of community, especially in the United States, I think it's much more concerning compared to Europe and India to me. Um, that's Interesting. Talk to me a little more about that. What, what what do we do? And I would argue when I go to Europe and and um, sort of enjoy myself there. The reason I enjoy myself there is a they they respect you know they res- there's a lot of support for one another right they like right. like I was noticed in Spain you know, a lot of women carrying uh, machine guns and things and they, <laughs> and they like equality is like very highly supported uh, and. And they love their culture, they love their language, they love their food, they love their time together, and they love their families. Right. Am I right about that? You are 2,000 person spot on. No arguments there. <laughs> and so what what do we do to – I mean, we, we are racked with guilt and shame and our families are fractured and no, nobody has a family and – 
what's next for us? You know, I mean, there are a couple of, I think, factors that I think is really making it or breaking it for us in the U.S. For example, in India, I feel like the population is, is large. You know, there's billions of people out there. And I think people connect much more easily because of their socioeconomic caste and, you know, the pros and cons to that. I think they well, connect. See, we would sit in judgment of all that, right? Right. We would right. say, oh, there's, no, yeah. no, no, cast move, no. <laughs> but you're saying there's some advantages to it. Yeah, there's pros and cons. But I think in some ways, there's a much more sense of community. For example, when I go visit my family, they know their neighbors, right? If something goes wrong, the neighbor's going to come. You and I live in Los Angeles. I am pretty confident that if something happens to me today, they may not find me for the next 10 days. I don't even know who my neighbors are, right? right? right. So I think there's a lot of... Uh, the art of living in a bubble in the U.S. where people are really busy doing their own thing, focusing on their own career or their families and, you know, very tight-knit circles. Uh, but I think historically, we don't have too much of a history or kind of this grounding of culture and tradition, except for Thanksgiving and Christmas. Like we can go to India or Europe. There's a lot of cultural kind of, you know, migration, immigrations and the flow. And, you know, we obviously have 2000 gods and 2000 things we take vacations for. <laughs> but I think that gives them an opportunity to connect and create the sense of community and celebrate each other at different occasions, right? Yeah, there's a famous book called Bowling Alone. Uh, about the lack of not just community, but organizations, clubs and things that people would, would get together with. And most of the mm, early 20th century and probably the 19th century as well, the, the last part of the 19th century, there was lots of organizations that people got involved with in clubs. And it's funny, a friend of mine, it's funny we're having this conversation. A friend of mine is a uh, retired army ranger and he was he has a little PTSD, and he was talking about how, how much he wants to give back to his peers, how much he misses hanging with his group and his people. And, the, and he goes, what do I do to give back to these people and these guys and help them with their PTSD? I said, you, you said it yourself. You miss the camaraderie. You miss the uh, whatever happened to the VFWs and the veterans organizations. And you, you just go hang out and that, just gather people together. Find some new version of that where people just gather together and support each other. I mean, look at the success of 12-step. I mean, it's all that is. It's just people, it's just fellowship. And it, it enriches people so profoundly. And we have to somewhere, maybe it's through healthcare. Maybe that's some of what we, you know, is the opposite of di the opposite of sexy uh, <laughs> attack, right? It's the yeah. opposite of sexy attack. Just hang out and go bowling. Oh, Robert Putnam was the, that's right, was the uh, author of Bowling Alone. <laughs> podcast is brought to you by BetterHelp. And of course, you know I'm a fan of BetterHelp. I'm a fan of therapy. I've sent a lot of friends, families, patients to BetterHelp and been very pleased with the services they provide there. And with therapy, getting to know yourself can, well, it, it can really empower you. It can deepen your self-awareness and understanding. And BetterHelp will connect you to a licensed therapist who can take you on that journey of self-discovery from wherever you are. If you benefited from therapy, you'll know what I'm talking about. I certainly have. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. And by the way, no longer any stigma, no longer any excuses. It's all online. So you don't have to worry about running anybody to a waiting room or anything like that. If, you, if you're embarrassed or stigmatized, stop it. BetterHelp is the way to get that help you want. Discover your potential with BetterHelp. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. Again, it's entirely online. Designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Discover your potential with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Drew today to get 10% off your first month. That is BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Drew. Um, and yeah. maybe that's something we should be urging, or, or maybe technology can help connect people. Because Zoom is not all the way there, but that's another way to kind of connect people and stuff. Maybe that's what healthcare technology should be doing. Yeah, and the other point I see is, you know, I don't know what your experience has been in the Europe, is that they appreciate having healthy disagreements and arguments. And I love having debates and talking about different points of views. And even in this conversation, we could have different points of view, agree on a few things. Yeah. But even to have the space to have this healthy conversation yeah. is, in my experience, the U.S. is very minimal. Well, that's new. That's new. That's a new right. thing. Again, I'm a time traveler, so I can tell you in, in <laughs> days, days gone by, <laughs> it was not so much. That's a new, wholly new phenomenon of being unable to have discourse. And I, I'm making it sort of my 
pastime or in my priority to create environments to bring things into the sunlight and to get people talking and listening to each other, that kind of thing. So I'm, that's why I value what you're doing and that we're talking here at 100%. But, but there's another part in here. I'm going to just tell you my observation because I was in Spain and Portugal a couple of weeks ago. And I was looking around and I thought, dear, my God, these countries have horrific histories when it comes to the African slave trade and what the Spaniards did to the, an entire continent of indigenous people. They destroyed them. And you bring it up with the Portuguese and the Spanish, and they're like, oh, yeah, our history is just horrible. But it's how we got here, and we love our culture now. It's unfortunate, but we weren't there. We would have changed it, but it's not us. And let's celebrate. Let's go to dinner. You know, it's like, let's, <laughs> let's, let's talk about politics. They, they just, they just, it's not that they put it aside. They just sort of accept it as something that they have no control over, but they express shame and guilt, but they aren't they aren't overcome with it. They aren't, they aren't just constantly in it. And we're in it all the time. We, we can't get over it. Uh, and I don't know what, what the difference is or how we get over it, but I just, it was so clear to me that difference. And, and they were so much healthier because they could enjoy what they had rather than feel bad about what they had. You know, you're, you're 2,002 billion person, right? I think that's the same in Europe and so much in India, given the British influence. Yeah. No one tries to push this under the rug and say, this does not exist. Or, that it, was, or about... that it was great. Yeah, it's, it's not <laughs> good. Like, okay. It's not yeah, good. It's like, yeah, we suffered, but here yeah. we are. Yeah. And this is our legacy. Yeah. We're going to do everything to make sure we don't go back there. Yeah. And we create leadership in our, in our communities. And that's how in the Indians and the Europeans, everyone else is addressing it. In America, uh, you know, there's this concept called the critical race theory by James Baldwin, um, who came from slavery, but he was really this this political poet who really influences us to integrate uh, all the slavery that's happened in America and teach that to kids in school. So they also, one, they accept it, like you said, they surrender to it, and they acknowledge, and they also create this awareness in different colors of people that this happened, but we don't want to have, we don't want to let this happen again because lack of acceptance, lack of throwing light on it really creates a sense of fear and insecurity just within America, right? Yeah, yeah. No, we need to fully bring it into the light, as we're saying. I, I totally agree. And by the way, there, there is, I kind of feel like one of the reasons we're stuck is there's parts of our history we do turn away from. And, and we don't really know, like like the Southern Reconstruction after after the Civil War, is really the traumatic era. Oh my God! What ha- when you really re- that's where lynching and shotguns and that that's where that happened. You didn't you didn't lynch a slave because the slave owner would kill you. That's his property. Uh, but in the in the Reconstruction, there was just decades of just the most uh, the most barbaric, awful stuff. Well, I. When I was, I started really learning about it, I was angry because scales fell from my eyes, not because of what was happening, because I, it wasn't something I should have been top of mind for me. I should have been very aware of this. And the fact that I wasn't and the fact that it's not being taught is deeply, deeply disturbing to me. No, I, I think, uh, yeah, and I think those lessons and those history, you know, going back in time really makes us humble and grateful, too. I think that's well, that's the missing part. But again, really we, yeah, being yeah. grateful for where we are now. You, 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 well, the, the, I don't have the gratitude yet. And that's the part that, <laughs> no, no, but seriously, that's the part I was seeing in Spain and Portugal and you're talking about in India. We have to get there. We have to get there. That's a re, that's a that's kind of a clear path. I've never really thought about it quite that way. We the, the, What we have to get to is gratitude. And it's hard to have gratitude when you're just finding out about the horrors <laughs> of what's going on. You know what I mean? It's like we should be bringing it all to the light and talking about it, accepting it, and then then try to find a way, a road to gratitude. That's a really interesting concept. So, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Well, listen, um, this conversation did not disappoint, uh, and I think we, we've solved <laughs> the world's problems, <laughs> and, we've, and we're gonna we know exactly where healthcare is going, and what we have to do about it. Uh, but I want people to listen to your podcast. If they're, if you like what Smriti is saying here, and that she's uh, and she's got some interesting ideas, and she talks to some interesting people, that is at Health Forward H L T H Forward Podcast. Again, it's really essential wherever you get your podcast. Follow her on Twitter at S I M, followed by three eyes I I I underscore S I M, and her LinkedIn as well. Let's it's Smriti. Is it your whole name in one one, or is there an underscore there too? I know, just Smriti Kirbanan. Uh, I'm going to spell it: S M R I T I K I R U B A N A N D A N. I got it. 
Yep, you got it. Bingo. You must have been a good reader and a good speller from an early age <laughs> to, be, to be able to spell your own name. So uh, anything you'd like people to know before we kind of wrap this thing up? I think my only two cents is we all have to individually take health and wellness in our own hands, which is, you know, eating right, being physically active and really uh, joining, you know, sense, creating a sense of community and being there for each other. And it starts with a lot of empathy and gratitude. Uh, I, again, to, to parrot you, two billion percent correct. <laughs> and, and do you know uh, Peter Atia? Yes, okay. I've read quite a bit. Okay, obviously. so I was talking to Peter the other day, and and I he's you know he's an extraordinary intellect, and was a cancer surgeon, is now a longevity expert, and uh, he's a very kind man, and his wife is also the love, lovely, fan, everything. The guy's great. Can't say enough about him. Do follow him as well. Uh, it's Peter Atia, A T T I A. And uh, I said, you know, I started quizzing him. I'm like, what about Metformin? What about blah blah blah? What about this? And he finally looked at me. and goes, vigorous exercise. <laughs> vigorous exercise that's the thing that's the ingredient and i thought oh yeah he's absolutely right and and he also and particularly for time travelers like me once you hit the age 75 there's a dramatic fall off in sort of your musculoskeletal uh, well-being let's say and you have to fight that you'd fight it back and um you probably don't know this, but I was on a reality show last night called Special Forces, where I had to go to the Jordanian desert and train as a Navy SEAL, essentially. Interesting. It, it, it was very interesting, and people <laughs> liked it, but I got very, very sick. I got heat stroke and dehydration, oh, all yeah, kinds well. of things. But but the, the, it was it was sort of draw, drove that point home to me, like that vigorous exercise is really important, and we must all pay attention. That's not a minor issue. It's a major, major issue, and, and that's individually we have to do that. You're absolutely right about that. All right, my dear, thank you so much, and I hope we can support you in the future. If there's anything else we can do, you'll let me know, and uh, hopefully this will drive people to the podcast uh, and towards better health and gratitude. Important word. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Dr. Joe. Appreciate it. We'll see everybody next time. For calling times and topics, follow the show on Twitter at Dr. Drew Podcast. That's D-R-D-R-E-W Podcast. The music from today's episode can be found on the swinging sounds of the Dr. Drew Podcast, now available on iTunes. And while you're there, don't forget to rate the show. The Dr. Drew Podcast is a Corolla Digital production and is produced by Chris Loxamana and Gary Smith. For more information, go to drdrew.com. All conversation and information exchanged during the participation in the Dr. Drew Podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes. Only. Do not confuse this with treatment or medical advice or direction. Nothing on these podcasts supplement or supersede the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Although Dr. Drew is a licensed physician with specialty board certifications by the American Board of Internal Medicine and the American Board of Addiction Medicine, he is not functioning as a physician in this environment. The same applies to any professionals who may appear on the podcast or drdrew.com. All month long on Pluto TV, stream the biggest Tyler Perry movies free. Watch your favorites like Medea's Witness Protection and Medea's Big Happy Family. Join Tyler Perry as he goes on a couples retreat with Sharon Leal in Why Did I Get Married? Or Idris Elba and Gabrielle Union in the Tyler Perry directed film Daddy's Little Girls. Plus, Pluto TV has hundreds of channels with thousands more movies and TV shows available on live and on demand. Download the free Pluto TV app on all your favorite devices and start streaming now. Pluto TV. Drop in, watch free.